Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that we can come to you through the incarnate work of Jesus Christ, our suffering substitute, our Savior, our Redeemer. We thank you that through his willingness to come into this world to take our place, we can come before you and rejoice at the throne of grace, receive grace and mercy at the time we need most in your presence. We know that we are covered in the righteousness of our Savior who took upon himself our sin and granted to us his righteousness so that we could be changed now and for eternity. Help us to understand Peter this morning. Help us to understand how we should follow Christ's example and how his promises and his work secure our future. We thank you for these truths that we see revealed in First Peter today, we pray that you would use it to glorify your name and edify your church. And I pray in the blessed name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. If you would just please open your Bibles with me to first Peter chapter one this morning, chapter one, verse 17. I'm going to begin here just as a introduction to what we're going to cover this morning. First Peter 1, 17 through 21. Peter's going to direct our attention to celebrate Christmas this morning properly, according to Scripture. The way in which this early church would have celebrated it at the time they received this letter from the Apostle Peter. 1 Peter 1.17 says, If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Messiah. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. According to the Apostle Peter, this is where the Christmas story begins. Peter tells us the story of Christmas begins before the foundation of the world here in this text. The good news of Christmas begins with God the Father's plan to incarnate His love through the willing suffering and sacrifice of God the Son, Jesus. That plan, as we know, as we celebrate today, took on flesh as a babe in a manger, so that God the Son could come to this world to go to a cross as a human substitute and die for the sins of God's children. Look at Matthew 1 this morning to see what Christ promised to do, what God promised He would do through His Messiah. Matthew 1, 21. Speaking about Mary, the Virgin Mary. Verse 21 says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save their, his people from their sins. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. God with us. Jesus came to save 
his people from their sin. And here he's talking about that God sent Jesus into the world to save his elect, those undeserving elect from all of mankind. And he's going to encompass Jews and Gentiles in this electing love of Christ that became flesh. Look at Luke 2. Luke 2. Verse 1. This is a familiar passage you should be reading with your family at this time of the year. But again, this tells us something about the celebration of Christmas that we partake of this week was something that God had ordained before the foundation of the world and brought to pass through the greatest act of incarnating His love you could ever see by He Himself becoming flesh, by God the Son becoming flesh to take our place. In Luke 2, 1, it says, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone on his way to re- and everyone on his, was on his way to register for the census, each to his own town. Joseph also went up to Galilee. It's about a 90-mile track from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and family of David in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people, all that God would send His Son to die for. This is good news. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, a Rescuer, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. These are the ones that God has pleased in, those that he has chosen for redemption. Look at verse 25. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was a righteous and devout, was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he would. He had seen the Lord's Messiah. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when it. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. According to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, your redemption, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. God took on flesh and came into this earth to die for his elect. To die for his children, both Jew and Gentile. And what we need to remember at Christmas is that is why the manger exists. The manger exists to lead us to the cross. So there we will see the infinite grace of God. 
displayed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the good news we celebrate at Christmas. We celebrate that Jesus, God the Son, became man. Not only that, He became man to do something. He became man to become our substitute. That is an amazing truth of Scripture. As a substitute, He had to suffer and die in our place. Because our sin demands justice. Our sin demands God's wrath. Yet Christ took that upon himself for us. If you, and look in 1 Peter. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter's going to tell us that throughout this book that God the Father has chosen to reconcile us in a very particular way, in a very precious way, through the very sacrificial suffering of Christ himself, God the Son. And what Peter gets at through this letter is that When Christians hear the good news of the gospel, when those God has regenerated, God has chosen before the foundation of the world, God has imputed righteousness to, when Christians hear the good news and the revelation of what God has done to send His love into the world, we will respond to God's choice of us and Christ's work by following Jesus' example while we live in this world. According to 1 Peter 2, and we're going to look at verses 21 through 25, we'll see, I'll give you an outline, then we'll read the text. We'll see that Peter calls us Or Peter tells us that our calling has a earthly purpose, number one. And Peter tells us that this calling God has given us has an infinite price attached to it. And Peter tells us that our calling also has an effectual power. As we read the text, you'll see that we are called for an earthly purpose by an infinite price for an effectual purpose to display God's power in this world. Look with me in chapter 2, verse 21. Peter tells us, For you have been called, this is a reference to your redemption, kaleo, called out to salvation. You have been saved, set apart, elect, chosen by God for this purpose. There's why you've been called. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth, And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his own and his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. You have been called for this purpose, verse 24, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness because we have been saved by Christ's substitutionary work. We have been called to suffer in this world unjustly at times, following Christ's example. When we do what's right, we will suffer is what he tells us in the passages previous to this. So he says you have been called for this purpose to suffer patiently, endure suffering for the Glory of God, patiently, since Christ did that for you in a way that brought you salvation. The purpose of our calling, Peter tells us, is that we are to reflect Christ in this world. Then when we go through suffering, when we're going through good times, whenever it is, we, we are, our purpose of our calling is to trust in God's provision that was revealed to us in Christ's substitutionary sacrifice and suffering we are to reflect his glory in the world when we are doing what is right in in the ultimate sense what we see here in what peter is telling us in the previous passages 
We need to be like Christ when we go through suffering. And Christ went through suffering with a wholehearted commitment to God's sovereign plan over his life. He is our example in that regard. He is not only our sacrifice, he's also our example of what it looks like to trust in God's sovereign plan, even when it looks like we're going to go through suffering. Christ reflected God's love perfectly and trusted God's plan perfectly while he suffered in the world sacrificially for us. And so he's calling us here to reflect Jesus's trust in God to the world when we suffer. He's saying that Jesus gave us an example of how God's children should suffer well on the earth by trusting in God's promises that are revealed through Christ's sacrifice. Christ exemplified how Christians should trust in God's promises and followed God's plan perfectly without complaint, even when he suffered. It says he, he was our sacrifice and he was also our example. Look what it says in verse 21. Since Christ also suffered, he was our sacrifice for you. He also left you an example for you to follow in his steps. Peter says, Jesus left us an example. And this word for an example here is, is basically, it's drawn from the idea of a child's writing tablet where the letters of the alphabet would be laid out on the tablet and you would lay a parchment over that and the child would learn to trace out his alphabet and learn to write properly by tracing the example set before him. And here we see Jesus is called to be our pattern. He is our pattern or the, the pattern we trace our lives over. As we go through suffering in this world, we follow his trust. We follow in his provision. We follow the fact that he himself went through suffering without complaint by the hands of unjust men. Can you fathom the depth of God's mercy and love that he would incarnate himself and come into this world and suffer for the sake of saving us, yet suffer by our wickedness and suffer Perfectly to leave us an example. Christ was an example of one who trusted God in every circumstance. And we are to follow that example. We don't follow Christ's example in atoning for anyone. We cannot be a substitute for any person. But we can follow Christ's example as he trusted in God's provisions, God's word. That's what we're called to do in verse 21. Verse 21 says we're to follow in Christ's footsteps, his path that he led before us. Jesus was totally and completely confidently trusting in God's sovereign plan that would lead him through suffering so that we can actually understand that when we go through suffering as God's children, he has not abandoned us. He has provided protection and a promise for us that our suffering is temporary now and that we can go through it with confidence that one day suffering will cease for the Christian. In verse 21 of 1 Peter 2, he goes on to talk about how that we should trust in God's plan for our life, even when we go through suffering. And he uses Jesus as the example, how Jesus entrusted himself to God's judgment and his sovereign plan completely. If you look at verse 22 through 23, you'll see that Christ suffered without any complaint so that we could be saved. Jesus trusted God to use his suffering to bring us salvation. Look at verse 22. Jesus, or he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in Jesus' mouth. And while he while being reviled, he did not revile in return while suffering. He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him. Who judges righteously, you see, Jesus trusted God, God's judgment, God's promises that through his suffering, he would bring many sons to glory. 
He would save God's children. He trusted in that. Yet it was difficult for Jesus. He was God, yes, but he was God the man. He became flesh. And, and what he did here in this comment by Peter is he fulfilled the prophecies and the promises that were given through the prophet Isaiah. And, and Peter is an eyewitness that ju- this actually happened. Peter is saying, I saw him when he was reviled. He did not revile in return. I saw him as he kept entrusting himself to the God who judges justly. He was fulfilling the promises and the prophecy that was given through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53. Turn there with me. Isaiah 53, verse 2. Jesus knew this prophecy. Jesus had God's word hidden in his heart. Do you understand? As God, the man or the God man, Jesus Christ, he actually grew as a child in knowledge and understanding. He grew by going to God's word and being taught by those who were his elders. He grew in the knowledge and the prophecies of the scriptures so that he, as he fulfilled all righteousness, did so trusting in God's promises that were written. Now, here's where that's important for us. We can follow that example as Christians. Jesus, the God-man, the Theanthropos, the forever God-man, when he needed strength to go through suffering, he trusted in God's revelation. And so can we. This is our strength in suffering. God has a promise and a reason for Christ's suffering. And therefore, there's a reason for God's children's suffering as well. We know that God didn't abandon us. God put us here to reflect Christ's as an example to the world around us. Jesus knew that. Jesus entrusted himself to these promises and this prophecy in Isaiah 53 too. For he grew up before them like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised. He was vile is the word in the Hebrew. Contemptible. And he was forsaken or rejected. By his creation, forsaken of men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised. And we did not esteem him. We did not honor him. He knew that he would not be honored. He knew that he would be the suffering servant that's talked about here in Isaiah 53. Look at verse 11. Yet he pursued the suffering for this reason. This promise in Isaiah 53, 11. As a result of the anguish of Christ's soul... God will see it and be satisfied. He will see it, is referring to God the Father, will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, Jesus, my servant, will justify or declare righteous the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Jesus knew the reason he could go through suffering with confidence was because God has revealed in Scripture there is a divine purpose in this suffering. He trusted in God's sovereign plan. And so can we when we go through times of hardship and difficulty. Because if you read Peter correctly, you understand Peter is given to us as scattered Christians who go through times of suffering, yet we're scattered by God, chosen by God, placed by God in the place we live to be the household of faith to declare His glory in the world. But it was through this promise that Jesus knew and had deep in His heart that kept Jesus' mouth from deceit, kept Jesus' mouth from reviling, kept Him from threatening when He was suffering unjustly by the hands of wicked men. Because Jesus trusted in God's righteous judgment. 
Because it was God the Father who sent him to suffer as our substitute. Therefore, he trusted that there was a greater plan going on, though he had every right to vindicate himself when he was accused falsely by wicked men. But he chose instead to humble himself, to be our substitute, to fulfill God's plan. Jesus entrusted his life into God's promises. He filled his heart with God's word. That's what controlled his mouth. That's why he was silent when he could have shouted. He was silent so that we can shout his praises. It was out of the abundance of Jesus' heart came silence. A silent trust. A silent trust and perfect obedience to God's will. Even when God's will was that he would suffer an infinite price for our sins. You see, Christmas is about the incarnating love of God. And that love was costly. And it was difficult for Jesus physically. Look at Matthew 26. Matthew 26. Matthew 26, 36. This takes up in the Garden of Gethsemane. And just understand this. Just as the manger exists to lead us to the cross, the manger also exists to lead us to Gethsemane where we see our Savior interceding for us and submitting to God's will perfectly. This is how he is prepared when he faces his accusers to stand there silently. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Understand Gethsemane was a place where the the olive presses were, a place of crushing. That's what it was known as. And here's where Jesus received the crushing blow, the reality that what he was about to embark on was the very atoning work of God that God had sent him into the world to accomplish. This is why he came. And this was distressful to him physically. And it wasn't the fact that Jesus was afraid of suffering a Roman cross, okay? It wasn't because he was afraid of thorns and spikes, Many people went to the cross faithfully throughout church history after Jesus, and they embraced it willingly. And so the cross wasn't the issue here. It was why the cross existed was the issue that Jesus was grieved in his spirit over this. The cross existed to be a place to lay our sins on the sinless one so that his righteousness would be laid to our account, yet he would receive the curse of his father in our place. That was what weighed heavily on the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved, grieved and distressed. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here. And keep watch with me. And notice what happens next. He went a little beyond them. And he fell on his face. And he prayed. My father. If it is possible. Let this cup. The cup of your wrath. The cup of God's righteous indignation. Against our sins. That would be placed on the savior. Let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will. But as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, you, so you men could not, could not watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And notice 
Jesus' flesh was never weak. It never failed to follow God's will, even when faced with intense suffering for our sins. He prayed, not my will, but your will be done. And he did that because he entrusted himself to a faithful and righteous judge. God, who is holy, sent the Holy One into the world to die for the unholy so that he could bring many sons to glory. Jesus knew that. We can follow his example of faithfulness and trust in God in times of persecution and suffering because we know that God is in control of all things and he's working all things out for good in the the life of those who are called by God and loved by God through the work of Christ. Christ endured the most unjust suffering that any man has ever endured on this planet and he endured that suffering by the will of God the Father It pleased God the Father to crush His own Son for our sins. And He did this according to God's plan. We should follow Jesus' example then because of the price He paid to rescue us. The price He paid was going through suffering in our place for our sins. The second point this morning in 1 Peter 2, 24, part A, is Peter tells us, number two, about the price of our calling. He tells us the price of our calling was infinite infinite price to call you to salvation. There was an infinite price paid by God at the expense of God the Son. God the Father paid the price through God the Son's sacrifice. And He did that because man's sin is against an infinitely holy God. The price had to be infinite because our sins are against an infinitely holy God and it demands an infinite payment, which is eternal wrath in hell. That is the payment that is due us for our sins. It's an infinity, infinity in hell, an eternal hell that would be burning against our sin. That is just, that is righteous, that is what our sins deserve and it would take an infinitely holy man to pay that price in our stead. And that's exactly what God sent for us. He sent Jesus to fulfill God's infinite wrath in our place. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. Christmas is about the cross. It's about the cross. Verse 24 tells us that Jesus himself bore our sins. Carried our sins in his body on the cross. If you see this, this changes the way you live in the world. Jesus, the perfect, righteous babe in the manger, lived a righteous life we could never live and was treated as if he had suffered because of our sins. Treated by that infinite price that God placed upon his life to redeem his children from their sins. He became a curse for us. Your sin demanded justice. My sin demanded justice. And God brought about both justice and righteousness and holiness and peace through the infinite work of Christ on the cross. Look at Galatians 3. Just just think about this for a minute as we turn to Galatians 3. On the cross, on the cross, every sin you've ever committed in the past... Every sin you've committed today and every sin you'll commit in the future were laid upon the sinless one who willingly came into this earth as a man, took on human flesh. He became a man for us. 
And he was treated by his father as if he was the worst reprobate in the earth so that we would be saved. In the, in the mystery of the Trinity, there has never been a separation of the triune God. Yet in the mystery of God's grace, something majestic happened when God took on flesh and became a curse for us. Without dividing the mystery, without dividing the Trinity, without separating the fact that Jesus remained fully God, God the Son died and was cursed and separated from His Father for a time on the cross so that we who are sinners would never be separated from God's love for eternity. God did this. God the Son accepted this. Jesus, who had never been separated from God the Father in any instant, any time, in eternity past, in eternity present, in eternity future, yet for a time on the cross, willingly accepted a curse for us so that we would be accepted by a holy and righteous God. Look at Galatians 3.11. Christ purchased us, redeemed us from the curse of the law. The law condemned us. The law explained the fact that we were sinners. We offended an infinitely holy God. His righteous demand against our sin would be cursed. Cursed be the sinner. Cursed be the, the one who has rebelled against God. And Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Our redemption comes through Christ's separation, being made a curse for us. And by faith in that, price that Jesus paid, we are redeemed from the curse of the law. We are set free to serve God now and for eternity. Look further in 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21. I think when you, when you understand the depth of what Peter is getting at when he goes through this letter to these recipients, he is telling them, that when you understand the depth of God's choice of you, the, the depth of God's price He paid for you, your response to suffering, your response to sanctification will be joyful and willful and thankful because God has done something infinitely glorious to redeem you, to purchase you, something that's greater than you can imagine. He has purchased you with something that is worth more than anything on this earth. He purchased you with the blood of His own Son. And that Son did something for us that is amazing. He washed us. He set us apart. He declared us righteous. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 5, 11, or 6, 11. Then we'll go to 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He talks about those who were sinners of all stripe here. In 6, 11, he says, Such were some of you, but you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the Spirit of our God. Now, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says that God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin on our behalf. Why did he do it? Why did Jesus become sin? Jesus wasn't a sinner. He never sinned. He was perfectly righteous in all that he'd ever done. But he was made sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the great exchange. The sinless one took upon himself our sin, willfully said, I will be their substitute. I will die in their stead. And our sins were laid on his account and he was cursed by God. 
on the cross so that we would receive His righteousness. There's an imputation going on here. Our sins imputed to the Savior on the cross. His righteousness imputed to our account so that when God the Father sees us, He no longer sees our sins. He sees the work of His Son and He loves us and accepts us eternally, infinitely, because of the infinite work of Christ who died for us. Again, in in the mystery of God's grace, God the Son received that curse on our behalf as our substitute. He died in our place. He humbled Himself to the death, to a death on a cross to pay our price so that we would be loved and accepted by God eternally. Back in 1 Peter 2.24, Peter is saying this in reference to, again, what he said and what he knew it was said in Isaiah 53. But let's read again. Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We, he, he did that so that we would die to sin. There's a purpose in his death. You see that? He, he bore our sins, not that we would let sin reign in us. No, may it never be, Paul would say. But so that we would know that our sins were forever dealt with at the cross. The price was paid. It was done to tell us die, paid in full by Jesus himself. Jesus paid the price so that we would die to slavery to sin and we would live in righteousness, a slave of Christ, following him, glorifying him, doing all this because God was the one who paid the price. He paid it for us so that we would live and reflect his goodness throughout the earth. Peter gets this idea that he says here from the prophecy in Isaiah. This whole, whole passage is replete with references back to Isaiah 53. Go back to Isaiah 53.4. Isaiah 53.4, it says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we esteemed him stricken, and smitten of God, and afflicted. See, even those that were smiting him, those that were accusing him, those who were standing there before him, doing all the evil atrocities to him, They were the ones who would be the recipients of mercy if they believed in Him, if they repented of their sins, and they believed in the revelation that He was the one who was afflicted for us to take our place, pay our price to transform us and bring God glory in the world through us. Peter tells us that it was the love that God had for His children that did this. He did it so that we might die to sin. God God does not want us to live in sin. It would not be infinite love and mercy and holy justice for God to save us from our sin and allow us to live in our sin. The very thing that separated us and hurt us and destroys our relationship between us and God is sin. So for God to say, oh, you may sin now because grace abounds, that would not be holy or righteous or good. Instead, he says, he did this. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we would die to the sin that condemned us. And we would live in thankfulness, in righteousness. We do that because it was God's love for sinners that caused Jesus to enter into the world for us. And to take our place. Christ's sacrificial love, Peter is telling us, calls us to live differently in this world. That's the point. 24 says, he did all this so that we might live. Live to righteousness. You see, at the cross, what we see going on is, again, God is unleashing what we deserve on his son. 
On the cross, he's filling up. Jesus is filling up all of God's righteous indignation and removing our sins as far as the east is from the west to remove the penalty and the power of sin over us. It's not just that we're set free from the penalty of sin. We're set free from slavery to sin through the sacrifice of Christ, through his suffering. And and, in reality... That becomes evident in the true Christian's life because there is a desire for righteousness and a hatred of sin. For those who say that there is no love for righteousness and they can wallow in sin, there is no salvation. They have not believed in this Savior who promises that if he would suffer and die in their place, they would be set free from the penalty and the power that condemned them. What we see going on at the cross, when Jesus bears our sins in his body, he causes us to live in righteousness. What we see going on there is God's love for us through the love of his son being poured out on us powerfully to bring us sanctification, not just redemption. Peter's not just talking about redemption in this passage. He's talking about sanctification as we go through this world suffering for the name of Christ. He's telling us to bear up when we're being unjustly accused. Bear up when we go through difficulties, knowing that Christ went through them for us. We will never suffer under God's wrath any longer. Bear up because Christ has provided a sacrifice and atonement for us so that we could go through this life trusting in our Father who sent His Son to die for us. Look at Romans 6.1. Romans 6.1, the Apostle Paul makes this clear along with Peter. That if you understand what God has done to sacrifice His Son for your salvation, your redemption, you will also be moved to sanctification. When you understand the depth of God's love for us that was imputed to you at the cross by the crushing of His own Son in your place, when you understand that, sanctification is a joyful response of the Christian's life. In any circle where people have to be told, you've got to be sanctified, you've got to do this, you've got to keep these rules, there is no joy. But for the truly born-again person who says that God did something that he couldn't, I can't even imagine him doing. God did something for me that I could never do for myself. And in response to his great mercy and his great love, I want to live differently. I want to love Christ. I want to love righteousness. That's a reflection of God's work in us. That's redemption lived out through sanctification. That's what Peter and Paul both talk about. That's what Peter or Paul says here in Romans 6, 1. What should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that God's unmerited favor may increase? No, may it never be. He uses, by the way, the strongest Greek language in that phrase right there you could imagine. It'd be no, absolutely no, no way, no how. How shall we who died to the power of sin still live under its power? All right, either you don't believe Jesus really atone for all of your sins, or you believe you have to do something to... to uh, you believe that He didn't cover something, and, and, and you, so you can live in that sin because He didn't cover it, He didn't deal with it, God didn't crush Him for it completely. If you believe that, you don't believe in a full atonement. He died for all of your sins. Every single one. And, and listen, knowing that Jesus died for all your sins is not a license to sin. It's actually what sets you free from sin. And to respond to righteousness. Thankfully, that's what happens when you've been redeemed. I know that if I die, I enter into God's presence because Christ completed the work for me. So does that mean I should go on sinning because grace is there? No, may it never be. 
When, when I sin, I realize I have offended a righteous and a holy God who sent his son to die for me. I don't want to sin. I want to live. I want to live to reflect his glory. Peter sa- or Paul says that here in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into his death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might in the newness of life, walk in newness of life. See, Jesus was baptized into death for us. He was raised for the glory of God so that we would walk according to his work in the newness of our life. For if we have become united with him in his likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. I died with Jesus. My sins were dealt with completely. Slavery to sin has been broken by the work of Christ. I am free to live for Jesus today. I am free to live in a way that brings God glory. I am no longer bound by my indwelling sin, though I fight with indwelling sin. We don't say we don't sin. We know we sin. But when we sin, what do we do? We are like Paul. We look to our righteousness, which is Christ. We look to the one who died in our place and we're reminded of God's infinite mercy. And we repent of our sins and we trust in the work of Christ that not only saves, but sanctifies us. Now, verse 8 says, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. So if you really believe in the death of Christ in your behalf, you should be living accordingly. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over you. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under law but under God's unmerited favor. That's what Peter is talking about. That's what Paul is talking about. But you need to understand when you talk about sanctification and we talk about God's redeeming love for us that was paid by the blood of Christ. Understand the reason for for sanctification to follow regeneration. And it can't be the other way around. You can't you can't do good things to try to earn God's favor. God alone has to impute life to you. But he does so because God is so committed to reflecting his love and his glory and his justice to sinners that God would sacrifice His own Son to secure it, our salvation and our sanctification. And understand, salvation and sanctification both come through Christ's suffering. Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life. He didn't just die for your sins. We, we not only have Him carrying away our sins on the cross... We have him carrying an imputed righteousness to us, a righteous life that he lived for us to the cross. You see, if we just had Jesus taking away our sins at the cross, we would have a zero balance before God. And God says, without righteousness, no one will see God. Without holiness, no one will see God. We have none if we have a zero balance. That means we would have to earn it by trying to do good works on our own. 
after the cross. That's not salvation. That's not biblical redemption. Biblical redemption covers salvation and sanctification, justification and glorification. He declares us righteous. He makes us righteous in Christ positionally, and he transforms us progressively. Jesus on the cross bore the sins, but before the cross, he lived the righteous life that we could never live. So that we stand now under his righteousness, in his righteousness. And when God the Father sees us, he loves us because he sees his son's righteousness in us, covering us. That's what's going on at the the work of Christ here, as Peter talks about it. Look back in 2.24. In 2.24, Peter goes on in part B to tell us that, number three, the power of our calling, the power of our calling to, to walk as, a, as Christ walked, to be able to, to follow his example, that, that power behind that calling comes from the wounds of a sacrificial lamb. The power of our calling comes through the wounds of Christ. Look what it says in verse 24b. For by Jesus' wounds you were healed. Now, understand this. In Peter's day, these Christians who were suffering under Nero, under persecution, under unjust government and so forth, they might have had a tendency up to this point to think, okay, I've got to suffer so I can get God to be pleased with me. I have to suffer and take whippings and beatings and abuse so that God will accept me, so that God will love me, so that God will care for me and carry me home to heaven and protect me between now and then. I have to do this so that God will love me. Peter makes it really clear. It's not your wounds that brings God's love to you. It was the wounds of his son that brings his love. The one who sacrificed his life for you. And what Peter's doing is, he, again, he's reflecting back to what the prophet Isaiah said. Go back to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, now verse 5. And for you to understand this passage, this is very important. This passage here, verse 24b down to verse 25, go together. Okay? You need to understand that. What happens here is, it's by his wounds you were healed. And what he's talking about is referring back to how Jesus' actions, by, through Jesus' sacrifice, we are brought under God's protection, under his guidance, under his guardianship, under his love. That's what he's getting at. By his wounds, by Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus' suffering, Jesus' substitutionary atonement for us, we are brought to the good shepherd. We are protected. It's not by anything we do. It's solely by the work of God that God ordained from before the foundation of the world that he would accomplish through his son. It's through that work, and that work led Jesus to suffer in our stead. Isaiah 53 and verse 5. But he, speaking of Jesus here, prophecy about Jesus, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed. For our iniquities. The word crushed here is daka. It means he was beaten to pieces in Hebrew. Not because of the wicked man who did it, not because Jesus was wicked, he was beaten because of our wickedness. This is happening because of you, because of me. If you believe, in God's prophecy. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, 
we are healed. By his scourging, which actually the word scourging means by his black and blue marks, by his bruising, by his beating, by his suffering, we are brought healing. Now, Peter's whole point in this whole passage of chapter 2 is he's talking about suffering Christians, trusting themselves entrusting themselves to a righteous judge who sovereignly places them where they're at, and he's going to protect them. And he bases his idea of protection on the fact that it was Jesus who stepped in between God's blow against us and what we deserved, and Jesus took it for us. God the Father sent Jesus to become our substitute and to suffer in our place, to receive that wrath so that we could receive his protection for eternity. Verse 24, 1 Peter 2, according to Peter, Jesus' suffering and sacrifice healed, healed not the physical cancer that we have. It healed the spiritual cancer that decays our souls. It, it healed the separation, the gap that was between us and a holy and righteous God. It bridged the gap. He took our place. He filled up the wrath of God. Again, in John At the end of John's gospel, when Jesus says at the cross, it is finished, he says, it is paid in full to Telestai. And he breathes his last breath. He paid our penalty. He filled up what was missing between us and God. He took our wrath and he brought us righteousness. Took away sin and imputed his holiness to us so we can stand before God forgiven and accepted. Jesus became a man to fill up God's wrath against our sin. And he had to become a man He had to become a baby. He had to live a life as a perfect infant, a perfect boy, a perfect teenager, a perfect man to become our perfect substitute. But he was more than a man, wasn't he? He was the incarnate son of God. God paid your penalty. God demanded a penalty. And God loved you so much that he sent his son to pay it for you. Peter says that through Jesus' wounds, we receive spiritual healing. Again, the context of Isaiah and the context of Peter is not talking about physical healing in their context, okay? Now, I will say this, by the way. Physical healing will come to us as Christians one day. Complete healing at the resurrection of our bodies. We will be glorified. We will have glorified bodies. Do you realize that you and I will have a real glorified body, a real body that's completely whole, without sin, without decay, without the effects of cancer and heart disease and any other problems in this world because of sin, removed. One day healing will come through the sacrifice of Christ. We receive it in the future at the resurrection of our bodies. But here primarily what Peter and Isaiah both are talking about, they're they're concerned with our spiritual condition, the spiritual condition of our soul, our our sin-sick condition that demanded punishment, yet instead Christ stepped in to take our place and receive it for us. He says, Jesus received my stripes, your stripes, your beating, your punishment. To bring us complete reconciliation with God. That's what Peter's talking about in 1 Peter 2. He's telling us that through Jesus' suffering and sacrifice and stripes, the penalty of sin is forever removed from us. Do you believe that? Do you realize that? If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you've repented of your sin and trusting in your own righteousness and you've trusted in Christ alone, you have no sin guilt before God. You are as loved and as accepted as God the Son. You realize that if you realize that, that will go a long ways to transforming the way you walk in this world. 
the way you suffer, the way you entrust yourself to God's plan, even when it takes you down a turn you don't expect to a hospital room or to a funeral home. You still know God's in control. God has done something to guarantee my salvation. God has done something to sanctify me in the process. And this is part of it. This suffering is for my good and God's glory. So we give him thanks for that. The healing that Peter is talking about is actually defined for us in verse 25. In verse 25, Peter says basically that through Christ's suffering, we are brought spiritual healing. And that spiritual healing does something to us. If you read this correctly, if you read this in accordance with the rest of 1 Peter and the rest of Scripture, you understand that spiritual healing can do something to us practically. When you've been redeemed, you have a response in the heart to God's grace. And that response is repentance. Spiritual healing brings repentance. Sorrow over your sin. When I think about the cross of Christ, I see my wretchedness. I see what I deserved infinitely being poured out on Jesus in my place. That is what causes me to see my sin and be repulsed and turn in faith and trust in Christ's completed work. You know, I don't, I don't turn at, at repentance and say, no, I've got to do something to keep God's Favor coming. No, I know that Christ has accomplished all that I could ever do and more. And so I put all my confidence in what God has revealed, that Jesus came to be my sacrifice, my substitute, to live the life of righteousness I could never live. And that's what spurs me on to walk in obedience and trust in God's protection. That's what Peter's saying here. If you understand you've been healed spiritually from your sinful condition, the gap has been healed between you and a holy, righteous God through Christ becoming your substitute, then you have been brought back. You've been brought. You were a straying sheep. You have been brought back to a place of protection. That healing, he says, did something to us in verse 25. You were continually straying like sheep, but now, and now is referring back to what God has done through Christ. Through His stripes we are healed. Through His stripes we are brought back in union with God. In union with God through Christ's hypostatic union, becoming a man. We are brought back into union, and we have returned to the shepherd and guardian of our souls. That healing is what brings straying sheep back. Christ died for his sheep. He didn't die for goats. He died for his sheep. Those that he died for will come to faith. Every soul that Christ died for, according to John 6, 33 through 44, every soul for whom Christ died will be raised up on the last day. He will not lose any sheep. They will not slide away. Through backsliding, they will not slide away. Through someone else stealing it from them, they will not slide away from God's redeeming love because He bridged the gap Himself. We have been returned to the guardian. You see what it says? The guardian of your souls. That happens when you repent. That happens when God grants you faith to believe and grants you repentance of your sins. When you turn away from trusting in your works, in your righteousness, in your churchianity, in anything you do, when you turn away from all that and you trust in Jesus' completed work, you find eternal healing and protection through Christ's suffering. 
That's what you find. Christ's suffering and sacrifice and his stripes powerfully display to us the price that God himself paid to not only purchase us, but to sanctify us and protect his sheep. The power of our calling is Christ's work. The power of our calling comes from a, it says here, a shepherd, a mighty shepherd. And that mighty shepherd became a babe to take our place. The mighty shepherd came into this world as a sinless baby and grew to be a man who would be sacrificed to bring many sheep home to glory. That's what Isaiah 53 talks about. That's what Peter is getting at. You've been healed by his work, by his suffering. Therefore, you can exemplify him in the earth when you go through suffering. He trusted in his righteous judge, his father who sent him into the world to save sinners. You can trust in his work and you can trust in his promises as well. We celebrate the fact that God has provided not only a covering of our sin, but protection that will last throughout eternity through Christ's incarnation. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. From the manger to the cross, right? From the manger to the cross, we see God's promises being fulfilled perfectly through Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice, a willing sacrifice. Those of us who have trusted in God's provisions and promises that came through Christ's sacrifice. We, according to Peter, says we have died to sin's power and we are now to live in righteousness for God's glory. And that testifies that we believe and trust our souls to our shepherd and the guardian of our souls, the Lord Jesus, who died in our place. We trust in God's promise. We trust in God's provisions. We don't fear suffering anymore for our sins that ceased. Now we live We live in righteousness because Jesus became our substitute, became an example of how to entrust our lives into God's sovereign care from now to eternity. See, when you go through Peter, Peter is focused on one thing. You belong to God. You belong to God. He purchased you. He chose you out. He called you to salvation. And he is the one working in your sanctification because he has chosen out a people That would bring him praise. Do you realize Jesus came to die for God's children? To give God praise eternity through our salvation and our sanctification and our one day to come glorification. We we can persevere in this time of suffering because Christ suffered for us. Because we can entrust our souls to our shepherd and our guardian. Who righteously shows us what our sin costs Jesus what he has promised us through his sacrifice, which is eternal life. And I don't want us to ever think eternal life is something we look for. It's the the duration. It's, It's not the duration. It's the quality of our existence. It is eternal in its duration. You can't really say it's in a duration, though. It's eternal. But it's speaking of our the quality of the life that we have received. We have received the life of Christ. We are given life and we will exist in eternity through Christ's work. What do we say in heaven? What will we sing in heaven? Worthy is the lamb who was slain. That will be the song of the redeemed for eternity. We'll always be looking to the suffering of our Savior and giving him praise. Not only at Christmas, but eternity, right? Forever and ever and ever. When it comes to Christmas, though, my fear, and I I pray that I... Somehow got this across today, but my fear is that 
Many churches aren't speaking about why the manger exists. He became a baby to suffer for us. He became flesh. He took on flesh to be humbled to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that we would be made the righteousness of Christ. So that we would be set free from sin to serve a mighty and great Savior from now into eternity. And if we don't talk about that at Christmas, I don't know when we will. It's not a cute story about a manger and shepherds. It's a story about a brutal execution that was put into place by God the Father to redeem His children. But it cost Jesus His life to do so. The manger exists to point us to the cross. God the Son lived the righteous life we could never live and He died the death we deserve so that we could become children of God. That's the good news at Christmas. It's not based on our works, but the work of one alone, Jesus, the God-man, the Theanthropos, who never divested himself of any attribute of God. He was fully God, yet fully man, when he hung on the cross and became cursed for us so that he could bring to us not only a perfect sacrifice, but a secured protection for eternity. We give him praise for that today. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you today in the name of Jesus, our Redeemer, our Savior, our Substitute. We thank you, Lord, that you have revealed to us in Scripture at this time of the year that we have been given a great promise and a great example to follow. As Jesus followed your sovereign will perfectly because he trusted his soul, he entrusted his soul to you who judge righteously and he trusted in your revealed word perfectly. God, I know that we who are Christians can follow this as well today. And Father, today for anyone here who does not know you savingly, has not repented of their sins completely and trusted in the finished work of Christ alone for their salvation, I pray that today, God, through Peter, you would save those that are lost. Those sheep that need to be brought back. Those sheep who need to be redeemed and retrieved and guarded. Those for whom Christ died, God, I pray that you would work in their souls today, right now, through this word, through these truths, to redeem them for your glory, number one, and for their good for eternity, number two. And I pray you do this in Jesus' name. Amen.